Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we could be here today uh, in your house with your people to come before you and to worship you. God, we thank you that we could lift our voices in, in song and praise, that we could lift up our prayers to you knowing that you hear. But God, we thank you that we could come, that we could hear your word preached this morning. And we pray that we would hear Jesus, that we would hear the hope that we have through our, uh, through our only God and our Savior. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. So have, have you ever uh, babysat or maybe you had a sister who babysat, I don't know, or you've watched somebody's house for them while they went out of town on vacation and, you know, of course, when you show up to, to babysit or to home sit, whatever, you know, the homeowner or the parent has probably a, a whole printout of instructions and phone numbers and, and everything else. And even though they've gone to all that length, you know, isn't it very common that as they're walking out the door, what are they doing? Oh, yeah. And don't forget, Johnny likes to have this book read before you go to bed. And, and he has to have his blanket. Or, you know, and don't, don't forget, I, you know, at the bottom of the stairs off to the left is the, the main water turn off. So if there's some leak, you can turn the water off. Or, oh, by the way, our neighbor that lives across the street is really helpful. And if you need anything, he can help you. And there's just all these last minute instructions. Well, sometimes... When you read the Bible and you get to the end of a book, it can feel like that. Like there's all these random instructions that are just being thrown at you that you're hearing and you're thinking, how are these things related? And sometimes it's very difficult for us to see the relation of these things to what the author has been saying, in this case, uh, James. But, uh, but the reality is, is that they are. If you, if you look back, I know we've got quite a few folks here today that haven't been with us through the whole series, but if you look back to James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, James has been talking about religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless. And, and he says, really, it consists of three things. First of all, keeping a tight rein on your tongue. Second of all, he said, helping widows and orphans in their distress, or you might even broaden that to those that are in need. But uh, in that day and time, widows and orphans were, were the most needy. And third, to keep oneself unpolluted by the world. And as we come to the end of James, it is just a whole bunch of like bullet points. And you're thinking, wow, he's just given me my last minute instructions before they leave town and I watch their house. But, but really, they're more related. Really, from verses 13 on, he's talking about prayer. And, and we'll be looking at that over the next uh, uh, several weeks. But in, in verses 12 and 13, he's really focusing on the godly control, the tongue, as he talks about oaths and as he talks about uh, how we are to respond to things verbally as we encounter circumstances in our lives. In verses 14 and 15, he's talking about uh, the, um, what to do respecting those that are sick, you know, caring for those that are poor and needy. And, and then also talking about the conversion of the you know, forgiveness of sins of one another and conversion to Christ. And so there is sort of woven within this also that element of being unpolluted by the world. So it sort of covers, James sort of covers all three of the things that he's been unpacking throughout his epistle. But this morning I want to talk about how we praise the Lord in our lives. 
And uh, first of all, just praising the Lord in truth. And we see this in verse 12. Now, verse 12 is one of those verses in James where all the commentators are going, huh, I don't understand why he put this verse here. And if you came this morning for me to tell you why he did that, I have to say, I don't know. I agree with many. One commentator said, I don't think we're ever going to know why James said what he said here. Now, there's, there's some, some theories and some ideas. But the reality is, is that verse 12 is in his letter. And so it is something that we must give attention to. And so let us read verse 12 where James says, Above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, kids, kids, when your parents tell you not to swear, they mean that you shouldn't cuss, right? Or you shouldn't say bad words, right? That's not what James means when he's talking about not swearing here. He's really talking about something different. James is speaking about not swearing an oath or not taking an oath. Now, um, that an oath would be like a promise, kids, if that might help you a little bit. But the original purpose of an oath was to guarantee a person's word. A person may take an oath to reinforce the truth of something that they've said or that they promise that they'll do in the future. It's like saying, uh, I really mean what I'm saying. I promise. You know, maybe you've ever said those words. So, kids, the way that you might take and say the same thing today would say, maybe you say, I saw her take the book. I pinky swear. Do you guys still pinky swear today? <laughs> At least they did when I, when I was younger. I don't know. But they'd say, I pinky swear. You know, that means you really, really, really mean what, what you're saying. Or, or I, I, I'll bring my baseball glove over to your house so that we can play ball. I pinky swear. And you know that, you know, that's not just some old promise. That's like a super-duper promise. I mean, they are going to keep that promise because they said that they, they pinky swear. It's, it's sort of uh, having, feeling a need to beef up your word. Now, when the Bible talks about oaths in the Bible, uh, oaths are not forbidden. Uh, God, matter of fact, God himself takes oaths to guarantee the fulfillment of what he's promised. Let me just give you a couple examples from the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 11, the Lord says, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Or I think even maybe a better example of that is Hebrews 6.13 that says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. So God says, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make this promise and I want you to know that it's true and there's no one greater than me, so I'll swear by myself. And that's exactly what God did. So, you know, the Old Testament did not prohibit the giving of oaths, but demanded that a person must be true to the oath he had taken. And we read of that in Leviticus 19.12, where it says, You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So the idea of taking an oath was to say that if you're not telling the truth, then what you're going to do is you're going to bring a curse upon yourself. So, so you made an oath only in those situations that were really extreme. It's not something that you did 
all the time. And so God's people would swear oaths to show that they were telling the truth. But in order to keep from swearing falsely by God's name, which they considered holy, as a matter of fact, uh, if they saw God's name, Jehovah, they would not pronounce it. They would say Adonai instead because they considered that so holy. So they, they didn't want to swear by that name falsely. So they would swear by other things. They would swear by heaven, where God's throne is. They would swear by earth, which God made. Jerusalem, which was his city, or maybe even one's own head, as Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. And so in, in doing that, uh, what people were looking for is sort of little loopholes in terms of giving oaths. And sometimes they would devalue the giving of oaths by, uh, by giving oaths a lot. You know, it would almost imagine, kids, if you had a friend that every time you talked to them and every time they said they would do something, they said, I pinky swear. You know, hey, I'm going to come over to your house today. I pinky swear. You know, I'll see you tomorrow at school. I pinky swear. Oh, um, you know, if you come over to my house, um, let's watch TV. And you say, yeah, I don't want to watch TV because you always want to watch what you want to watch. And they go, no, we'll watch what you want to watch. I pinky swear. And what if they always said that they would pinky swear? Well, the reality is, is they can't keep all those promises. And so eventually their word would become worth nothing. And you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't always believe them. And sometimes with the Jews, it would be like that. They would use their, these oaths in a more flippant way. But then other times, they would do it in such a way to try to weasel out of their promise or their oath as they swore these things. And we see this in Matthew 23. And you're welcome to turn there if you want. Matthew 23, 16. You know, Jesus is talking to the religious leaders. Okay, we're talking about like the preachers of the day. And, and he says to them, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound to his oath. In other words, if, if I say that I promise to do something and I swear by the temple, then I don't have to keep that promise. But if I swear by the gold of the temple, then I need to keep that promise. Or he goes on, he says, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. He doesn't have to keep that promise. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, then he is bound by the oath. And Jesus takes them to task. He says, guys, you know, you have to keep your word regardless. You know, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. I know whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Now, how do we do that today, kids? Let's say you have a piece of gum. And I tell you, I'll give you $10 if you give me that piece of gum. Because I really feel like I need that piece of gum. Now... I can tell right now, Tyndall's ready to sell me that piece of gum for 10 bucks. So he gets his gum out and he gives it to me and I put it in my mouth and I chew it. And he goes, okay, Pastor Rick, where's my 10 bucks? And what do I say? Oh, well, I had my fingers crossed. So therefore, I don't have to honor that promise, right? Of course, Tyndall's not going to be happy about that. But, you know, that's sort of, this is sort of how the Jews did that. You know, in, in the New Testament, they would say, oh, well, I swore by the temple. I didn't swear by the gold of the temple. And, and so um, you, you, you see that. Now, the, the people that 
James was writing to was, was guilty of doing the same thing that we do when we, we cross our fingers. And for adults, we do the same thing. I've been talking to the kids this morning, but you as adults are thinking, I hope he doesn't use me as an example, because I, I probably, yeah, I, I very much uh, feel that. But what, don't we sometimes do this? For you parents, don't we sometimes do this with our kids? Oh, I promise, you know, we'll go do thus and such. And, you know, you get busy at work or you got stuff to do around the house and, and you just, it takes longer than what you realize and, and, and you don't keep your word in terms of that. And so what do you say? Well, you know, I'll tell you what, this weekend I'll make it up to you. I really promise we will do it this weekend. And then guess what? Something comes up that we feel like is more important than the promise that we made. And so then we don't keep our words to our kids. But it's not just parents, obviously. And we may do this with spouses as well. You know, the husband who, is, uh, who has said, sure, I'll get that fixed for you, honey. And that's been about, you know, eight months, you know, since he said that. And, uh, and it's funny, there's all these other things that keep coming up, but, you know, not keeping his word to his wife. Or, you know, maybe it's one of those things, something I see all the time in the church is people who will commit to do something with someone you know, it might be just a friend say, hey, you want to go out and see a movie? Sure. But then somebody, another friend says, hey, you know what? My parents just got a new boat. You want to come out to the lake with me and spend time at the lake? And so what do you do? You sort of blow off your first friend that you promised you're going to go to the movie with because you got a better offer. And so you end up going to the lake and spending the weekend on the lake and and not keeping your word. Or sometimes what I even see in Christian circles is you just stand the person up. You don't tell them you're not coming. You just don't show up. And, and there's a sense in which we can find ourselves um, doing that. And I think in many ways that kids sort of use the whole crossing their fingers behind their back thing to say, I don't have to do that. I think for us as adults, oftentimes, what we can use is busyness. <laughs> We can say, I've, I've, I was busy. Almost like that lets us off the hook from, from having to keep our word. And I think even in the church, we have to be careful about that. You know, if we give a commitment to, you know, watch the nursery or, or uh, be a greeter or whatever it might be, you know, what do we say? Oh, well, you know, I've been, I've been busy. Things have been busier than what I thought. I, you know, I thought I could commit for six months, but now you're about a month into it. And you go, yeah, I don't think I could do that. And then you just begin to back out. We're not careful in terms of the honesty with our words. And, and I th- the thing that struck me as I was studying this is, you know, a person who feels like they need to use an oath a lot or to say, no, seriously, this time I really promise I'll do this, is probably a person who has not kept their word that much. It's a person who maybe has been well-intentioned and who wants to do those things, but it's probably a person who has habitually not kept their word. And so they feel the need to even get someone to believe them to have to really sort of add some extra to beef up their word. And so James says to us, just like Jesus does in Matthew 5.33, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. James calls us for simple, straightforward, honest speech on our part as children of God. Uh, our truthfulness should be consistent and dependable. And so we don't need oaths to support our words. A simple yes or a no should suffice. If we say yes, I know it's going to be a yes. You know, if so, so tells me no, I know it's going to be no. Because uh, the word 
is as trustworthy as a signed legal document. Uh, um, the Christian doesn't need to swear because his word is his bond in, in one sense. The Christian has been freed in Christ, his Savior, to speak clearly and precisely and truthfully, gently, sensitively, seriously, and with godly integrity. So Christians commit to integrity in speech and personal relationships. It doesn't need an oath because we are to be truthful. I like how Alec Motier put it. He said, we practice, he's talking about Christians. He said, we practice a devotion to the truth with our lips because the truth dwells within us. We practice a devotion to the truth with our lips because the truth dwells with us or, or in us. Because Christ is in us. And maybe you're here today and, and, and this may hit a little bit closer to home than what you really desire. And you go on and you look at what else James says in verse 12. He closes it out and he says, So that you may not fall under condemnation. Be a truthful person. You may not fall under condemnation. And you may be here today and you're thinking, Oh man... I have not been careful. I, I don't know that my kids can count on my word. I don't know that my wife can. I don't know that my friends would always think. I think they think that most of the time I would tell the truth, but, but I'm really not careful about that. Well, I, I think that what we need to remember is, is that Jesus was condemned for you and for I, for his children upon the cross. And James knows that because Jesus is James' brother. And, and because it was James' brother, Jesus, you know, he, he knows that Christ died and gave his life, that our sin, even sometimes of our double-mindedness, would be paid for. And not only that, but that we might be united to him. And, and, and as we are united to him, him as our older brother, that he might work to make us like himself. And we know that Christ is one who does not lie. I mean, the Old Testament tells us God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said and he will, will he, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? And that is Christ. What he says he will do. And he has died for us not only to forgive us of those times when we have not been truthful, but also that he might work in our hearts through his Holy Spirit that that we might grow to be truthful in what we say to one another. Understanding that what we say to one another counts. It not only affects us, but it affects the person we're talking to. And it also affects our, our witness towards God. As people see us, they're going to think our God is who he is based on what they see in us. So, anyway, just one more word about uh, official oaths. I know that a lot of Christians will then now take a passage like this and say, because James says, don't take an oath, if I have called for jury duty, or I'm called as a witness or whatever, I cannot take an official oath. But I think we've got to be careful. That's, that's putting more weight on this passage than really is here. You know, if you look at, like I said, at the Old Testament, it doesn't forbid the taking of oaths. Even God himself took oaths. You know, this is talking about something very specific. James is dealing with... Uh, and addressing the issue of us taking an oath to ensure the truthfulness of what we have affirmed, not of someone else asking us to take an oath. So uh, just keep that in mind. Second of all, in verse 13, 
we not only praise God in truthfulness, but we praise Him in the circumstances of our lives as well. In verse 13. Uh, in, verse, in this one verse, he sort of summarizes all the circumstances of life very briefly. He says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Well, that, that pretty much covers all of life from one extreme to the other. Is life difficult and hard and you're experiencing things? Then pray. If, is, is your life good and cheerful and full of joy? Then pray. And, and what I mean specifically is praise God in, in the midst of that. And, and, you know, you look at those extremes and you see that really what he's saying is no matter what your circumstances are in life, whether they're difficult or whether they're, they're well, you know, it is one of those things where your attention and your focus is to be upon your God. Where you are to, to be dependent upon him, praying to him, focus upon on the Lord because James knows that it's in those circum those extremes especially that we are tempted to take our eyes off of Christ and even sometimes to rebel against him I mean think about it in the difficult times we can be tempted to rebel and complain and get angry thinking that th such things should not happen to us even accusing God as we saw back in James chapter 1 you know some will say nothing when they go through difficulties, uh, trying to pass over their troubles with a stiff upper lip, almost with like stoic endurance or something. Still others will sort of be plunged into a spiral of depression and discouragement, even to the point of some Christians I've seen who have nervous breakdowns because they've been so overtaken by their woes and their worries as they're taking their eyes off of Christ. But likewise... Not only in our difficulties, but even when things are going well, we can become spiritually complacent and lazy and think that we're able to cope with life ourselves and, and that we don't need God that much. We're doing okay, you know? Um, it's not that we don't believe in God. It's not that we don't pray to Him every once in a while, but there's not that sense of dependence upon Him. It's almost like, I got this, people. I got this. I'm doing okay with life. You know, if I need the Lord, I'll call on Him. You know, stuff, but, but I'm doing okay. And, and sometimes our day-to-day -day life, uh, show, or the practice of our day-to-day -day life shows that. So James is fully aware of these things, and he calls us to pray. But what does that prayer look like? Well, first of all, uh, he talks about difficult times. He's talking, he uses the word suffering, which emphasizes that uh, internal distress that's caused by outward circumstances. Have you ever had that in your life? Sort of that internal distress that's caused by outward circumstances. He, he's referring to those times in our lives when the circumstances bring such a great pressure upon us with no relief that no matter what we do, we cannot escape that pain. Have you ever had such circumstances in your life where no matter what you do, you cannot escape the pain of the circumstances that you're in? And in those times, James says, pray. Now, it's interesting, he uses the generic word for prayer. So, you know, because he does that, it doesn't really tell us what the content of that prayer is to be or, or how we ought to pray. So, how do we normally pray? Lord, would you get rid of these trials? Lord, would you take away this pain? But the problem is, is that James commands us in other places, even in this very letter, uh, to say that we should pray differently than that. He encourages us to endure the suffering with the right spirit and with the divine perspective. We see that back in 
James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Uh, verse 12, we, we saw it just in the text before this, in chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. And so he encourages us to pray for spiritual strength to endure the trial with the godly spirit, casting all of our cares upon him. Now, brothers and sisters, I'll tell you this. You may not be going through a difficult time, but you know, may know someone who is. Now, as a pastor, I get the privilege of knowing a lot of the struggles of people. I feel a lot of the weight of people's lives and the things that they're going to. And I know as a pastor, I've oftentimes struggled, well, God, how do I pray for them? How do I pray for them? And I have to admit, and I, I'm not happy about this, but in my early years of ministry, I would pray, Lord, take this away from them. Take these trials away from them. But I've come to understand that the Lord would rather I pray that they might stand firm in the midst of those trials, that they might grow to know God more intimately and to love Him more completely. And so I pray more for strength. I pray more uh, that, that they would be able to endure that which they're, they're going through. I like what one person said. They said, when we have a burden, it is surely better to pray for a strong back rather than to curse the load. We should pray for a strong back rather than to curse the load. And so that's how we can pray for ourselves and for others. Now, you may be here today and you may say, you know, Rick, I, I appreciate that and I know all that, but when I'm troubled, I get so depressed that I, I just don't, I'm just not able to pray. You know, I, I start to pray, but the very thoughts and the sentences dissolve sort of in mental turmoil and sometimes bitterness, sometimes fear, sometimes frustrations crowd out just any sense of being able to pray. And so what do I do? Well, I would suggest to you that the answer is in what James says. He said, let him pray. Now, literally what it means is let him keep on praying. In other words, don't, don't stop. You know, when you are in those times of great difficulty where it just seems like there is no hope, what Satan wants more than anything else is for you to stop praying. His aim is to end all of your prayers and he uses every clever tactic he has to cut the believer's lines of communication with the only source of strength that he has and that is with his God. And so he wants to disconnect us from, from our Lord. So we must keep on praying. No matter how disjointed and incoherent the prayers may be, cry out to the Lord. You know, take and open God's word and take the promises of Scripture and don't rest until, until they are yours. Pray, pray yourself to sleep. Have you ever had those times where your heart is just so heavy and the, the difficulties that you are going through are so overwhelming that every hour of your day is consumed with those things? And it may be the only way that there will be any sense of rest is if you pray yourself to sleep. I mean, listen to the words of David in Psalm 6, or Psalm 6, 6, actually. Okay, this is King David. He says, I am weary with my moaning. Have you ever had those times? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. That is the anguish and the agony that David felt. But he also says in another place, he said in Psalm 30, verse 5, he said, for his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. Talking about the Lord. He said, weeping may tarry for a night, 
but joy comes with the morning. He knows that even in, when he's in the midst of those darkest hours, that God is still there and that they will not be there forever. If the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express, then a little groaning on our part won't hurt. You know, I think that we are too used to tearless prayers. You know, I think as Presbyterians, our prayers are well thought out. You know, maybe sometimes even you listen to the way I pray on Sunday morning and you think, okay, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a very formal style. It's very general content, you know, stuff. But that's just sort of the nature of public prayer. But, you know, God wants us to call out to him. Our prayers often seem to be a little more than just trying to construct those perfect prayers. But maybe the way that we ought to think about prayer as we are alone with the Lord is just to cry out to him uh, with, with everything that is within our soul. To, 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 to literally cry if need be. Psalm 107 verse 6 says that the people of God cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. God is looking for hearts that love him and trust him and blurt out their petitions with all the sincerity of a heart that is in great need. Especially if those issues that they're wrestling with warrant groans that words cannot express. Words will, uh, cannot hinder real prayer. You, can't, you don't pray and think, oh, I didn't pray that well enough, so God didn't hear it. It may be, you may go, God, I can't even think of the words to say, but the anguish of my soul is so great. Lord, help me. Help. I'll tell you what, the most biblical prayer you could pray is help. God, help me. And don't feel like because you couldn't construct some great theological treatise in a form of a prayer that that's what's going to make God hear you more. Brothers and sisters, like I said last week, we have a God who understands suffering. He is the suffering servant who came and, and suffered and agonized upon the cross, was rejected by men to provide a way for us. So pray to him. Cry out to him and he will hear you. Psalm 55:22 says, Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Psalm 55:22, Cast your burden on the Lord. Give it to him. Cry out to him and he will sustain you. He doesn't promise to take it away. He may leave whatever it is right there on you because he's wanting to do a work in your heart. But even as you cast that burden upon you, and that burden is still, you still feel the consequences of that. He will sustain you and he will not let you be moved. Turn, if you would, to 1 Peter 5. I want you to see the beauty of this. For any anguishing soul, whether it be your own or someone else that you know that is wrestling, these are great words of comfort, brothers and sisters. He says, uh, 1 Peter 5, 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, 
firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's a sermon series even in and of itself. But I encourage you to, to take those words. But it's not just in the time of difficulty. It's in prosperous times as well. And uh, he said, you know, as a rule, times of suffering are often easier times for us to turn our eyes upon the Lord than times of prosperity. Even for the world. I think about, you know, when the world suffers, they're more prone to turn to the Lord. I think about after 9-11, about how many people were in church on that Sunday. And I remember what a big deal the media made about our national leaders attending church and praying after the terrorist attack of 9-11. Now that's not saying that their hearts were turned to the Lord and they gave themselves to the Lord. But it does seem like when times are hard, we are sometimes more prone to turn to the Lord. But rarely do times of prosperity cause us to turn our focus to Jesus. We tend to forget about God in times of success and happiness. And we forget to be grateful when things are going our way. And so James says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Now the Greek word there for, for singing praise is the word that we get our word psalm. Like the psalms in the book, and the Bible. The Psalms are the soul's expressions of joyful prayer, or as we might call it, praise. And so James' point is, is that joy and happiness are every bit as much of a cause of coming to the Lord as is our sorrows and our troubles. The difference is, is that when you come happy before the Lord, we have something for which to praise Him. So we ought to celebrate before the Lord. We ought to rejoice before Him in His goodness uh, to us. We might allow times of happiness to make us complacent. And so we might pray, you know, less. But the reality is, is that those are good times to come to the Lord in prayer. You know, um, we're going through a book on spiritual warfare in the men's study. And yesterday, one of the quotes I read to the men was about prayer. Because it was talking about the place of prayer in spiritual warfare. And uh, he said... This And for you men that have the book, it's on page 90, so you can look it up later. But this is the quote. Uh, the authors say, Our real obstacle to frequent and consistent prayer is often our failure to acknowledge our deep need for God or a pressing dependence upon Him. When we do not sense our weakness, our helplessness, our dependence, and our danger, we will not pray. And I think for most of us, we feel a little sense of weakness. We feel like, you know, we could use God's help. But that full sense of dependence and brokenness before God is oftentimes an experience that, we, that escapes us. And so we think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And I think as we, uh, we look at this, we're a lot like the Israelites, and if you remember the Israelites, they would come before God almost with a demanding attitude uh, rather than one of thanksgiving. They would often view life from the perspective that their every need ought to be met and their every want fulfilled. I mean, think about it. So they're in the wilderness and they cry out to God and say, God, we need food. And so God gives them what? Manna. And they collect manna and it's there every day. 
except on the Sabbath. They gather twice as much the day before, but the provision is there. And so what do they do? They get together, they have a Bible study, and a, and a, and a worship time of praise to thank God for the manna, right? No! They say, God, I'm sick of manna. We have manna in the morning, manna in the afternoon, manna in the evening. I want meat. And so God gives them quail. And in, in many ways, they act more like a spoiled child who's demanding to those around them, you know, than they do as someone who is grateful and thankful for God's provision. And, and I don't know about you, but, you know, it's sort of hard sometimes to be around a spoiled child, isn't it? You know, because they're even demanding adults. You need to do this for me. You need to do that for me. It doesn't mean I don't love them. But it can be sort of a challenge sometimes to be around a spoiled child. But I think sometimes maybe our heart is that of Israel. That that God has truly been good to us. And God has given us so much. And rather than focusing upon what he has blessed us with, we focus on what we don't have. Now, we come by it honestly. Because in the garden with Adam and Eve... The Lord gave them everything, not only everything that they needed food-wise and, and, and provision for shelter. He gave them purpose. He put them in a garden and gave them work to do with no toil. And so they had a sense of purpose. And Satan comes and he asks questions to imply, yeah, but God didn't give you that, that one tree. And so what did Adam and Eve focus in on? not upon everything that God had blessed them with and given them, even a relationship with Him, they focused on, ha, He didn't give us a tree. And so they ate of that tree and they sinned and rebelled against God. And so therefore, we struggle with that sin even to this day. And so our hearts can be so focused upon those things that, that we don't have and we miss out oftentimes on the many blessings that the Lord has given us. And so let me just ask us today, where's our hearts as we stand before the Lord? Where are our hearts today? Are we walking in the joy of knowing God as our creator and provider who loves us so much? He loves us. He loves us. He loves us. Even in those difficult times of suffering, he is taking us through the valley of the shadow of death because he wants us to lean upon his breast ever closer and to know him more intimately. He loves us so much that he would come to suffer torture, humiliation, rejection. And he did those things, brothers and sisters, not for himself, but he did those for us so that we might know him as he is. Maybe you find yourself here today and you're more like a spoiled child who's ungrateful than a child of the king, of kings who's been given everything and, and who is so thankful for that. If that's where you are, just pray. Pray. Ask God's forgiveness and pray. Ask for his forgiveness and praise him that he is a God who forgives. And so in those times of difficulties, we are to pray to the Lord that he might sustain us. In those times of joyful times, we are to lift up our voices of praise. When we come on Sunday, I, I hope you listen to the words of the songs. That we don't just get through the songs so we can get to the prayer or get to the songs so we can get to the scripture reading. Look at the words of the songs. They talk about, they are words of praise to God. And, and, and I encourage us to go home this afternoon and to sing songs of praise to God. Take your bulletin with you, okay? Take your bulletin with you and go home and praise the Lord 
with these songs to, and let the worship of this, this morning sort of spill out over to the rest of your day and then let that worship spill out over into the rest of your week as you focus upon the Lord and the goodness that He has given to your life. Amen? Let's bow our heads as we uh, take a moment to meditate upon the word that we've heard preached this morning. Jesus, we thank you for these words of, of hope that we have heard. Probably none of us would walk away um, here without seeing ourselves in this passage in some way uh, with our struggle with sin. But we praise and thank you, Lord Jesus, that you took our condemnation upon yourself, that, that you are the one who, even th- though we are in Adam as we are born and prone to complaining and acting as a spoiled child, you have come and pursued us to redeem us and to give us new hearts that are joyful and, and full of thanksgiving to you. We pray that we might continue to grow to be people that are coming to you in prayer and resting upon you, even in the darkest hours of the night as we wrestle with the most with things that are impossible for us to handle ourselves. Or Lord, whether we're rejoicing in the, the plentiness of the you give to us, uh, let us turn to you. Let our focus be upon you. God, may you be our all. We thank you, O Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen.